Some terrible things have happened in the United States, but one can only hope that we learn from those bad things. True symbol of the United States is not the bald eagle, it is the pendulum. And when the pendulum swings too far in one direction, it will go back. I am an optimist long run. I will do this job as long as I can do it full steam. And at my age, that means you take it year by year. What will be next year? I don't know. Hey, podcast fam. Welcome to another episode of Motherhood in Black and White. I'm Kanji. I'm Tara. And we are coming to you this week with heavy hearts at the passing of Justice Ginsburg. We're going to bring on a very special guest today, someone who I have known for over 35 years. But before we do, Tara, I just wanted to ask you, you know, I've been struggling a lot. I've been struggling since Justice Ginsburg's death. As a female attorney, it it shook me. You know, I just felt gutted when I heard about her passing. Um, I just wanted to talk to you and find out what she has meant to you, what her legacy means to you. Yeah, I was thinking about you too. I saw it post and then you texted me right after. And I know several female attorneys of a certain age that she was a huge influence for. I mean, we all know what she did, you know, related to gender equality and equal rights for women and and the rights that we have now because, you know, she sort of pushed that through. But I think what really touched me about her is she kind of showed that you could be more than just one thing, right? right? It was there was these tropes growing up about women where if you wanted to be super successful career woman, you couldn't be a nurturing mom. Or if you were a nurturing mom, you couldn't have a serious career or be educated or provide anything else, right? Right. Um, Or that if you were super career oriented, or if you were had an equal marriage, you had a submissive husband, right? right? Right. So there were these tropes that you could only have one or the other, you couldn't be all. And I think for her, what she showed us is that you could be all she was in a loving, gorgeous marriage that modeled what equality of gender meant, while still lamenting that that was her best friend. They were best friends and they were this incredible couple. And then she had children and she was a nurturing mom who went home and took care of her kids and and had this amazing career. And I just remember when I was studying her at one point, I think maybe in high school, I remember thinking, like, that's what I would like. Right. You know, I think I always thought I could only have one or the other. I couldn't have all of those things. I couldn't be all of those things. And she showed that you could. Yes. She was a model for me as a working mom, mm. but as a woman in general. And I'm really, really excited to bring on this guest because she and I came from the same high school. Mm. She's one year behind me. And I don't know if our guest, Sabrina, knows this, but her sister was my very first friend at wow. the all-girls school we attended. And it was because of her sister's friendship extending that to me. I, you know, I was the, I was the kid who was on scholarship. I was the black girl in a sea of all white girls. And her, her sister just accepted me and loved me and her family would invite me over after school. And so having a safe space is something that I have always valued. And I've always thought lovingly on, um, on Sabrina and the rest of her family. So having this show and having the ability to reconnect with her, it's just a special moment for me. And knowing that Sabrina shatters all myths about 
what a woman can or could or should be. Mm-hmm. And she just steps into the shoes of Justice Ginsburg. And I just know that she followed in those footsteps because like you were saying, Tara, Justice Ginsburg was a woman who, who took stereotypes about what a woman couldn't be and right. shattered them. Yeah. And that is Sabrina. So we are going to welcome Sabrina Parsons to the show. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about I her. Can't wait. Sabrina is one of today's preeminent female tech CEOs. She has been the CEO of Palo Alto Software since 2007. She's a graduate of Princeton University, and she advocates tirelessly for entrepreneurs and working mothers all around the world. She gives of her time and her energy and her knowledge, and she is an outspoken advocate for gender and racial equality. She and her husband, Noah, live in the Eugene, Oregon area with their three sons. So Sabrina, this is Kanji, and welcome to the conversation, my old friend. Thank you so much, Kanji, and I am so, I don't know what to say. It's such a wonderful way that you described everything, and Laura, my sister, who Kanji described, is going to be so touched, and I'm thrilled to be here, albeit sad, um, as we discuss Justice Ginsburg, and I'm so glad she had such a strong legacy, but it is a sad day for all of us. It's taken some time to really process. And I think all of us are going to need more time. But I do like to think about her in terms of that legacy and that model that she left for all of us. Yes, exactly. So share with us how you found out about Justice Ginsburg's passing and how you have digested it this week. (sighs) So I was in a meeting on Friday afternoon, uh, Pacific time, And my phone just started blowing up with text messages. But I was still on a business meeting with team members from my company and, you know, ignoring the texts and wondering what in the world was going on. I knew everything was fine with my kids because they were home. And when I got off the meeting, it was about 5.15 Friday evening. And I was getting ready for a nice relaxing weekend. And it just was almost, you know, it was like a, a gut punch. It was, it, it, that's how I felt. It was like, this can't be happening. She's held on so long. We're so close. It, it was really difficult. And, and then I didn't even want to look at any more news about it. I just wanted to have process it emotionally myself without getting more news and politics. I just wanted to think about her and her life and what she meant to me. Right. And what exactly did she mean to you, Sabrina? You know, I think both of you have said a lot of how I feel, but just this idea that she really never thought about doing anything except her dreams and her goals. I mean, I I think the epitome of who she is, is, you know, obviously a quote we've all been hearing all weekend long, but when she was asked how many women are going to be enough on the Supreme Court, you know, when will enough women be there? And she said, well, when there's nine, right? Right. She is that model of someone who she doesn't even question that she should be there or that women should belong. It's just a given. And it's a philosophy that I feel like I've taken too. It's just, this is who I'm going to be and I'm not going to apologize for it. And women do too much apologizing. And I love that Justice Ginsburg, I feel like she never apologized and she did what she was going to do and just embraced it and did it 
you know, to the fullest. And she never asked for permission. Right, right. Well, one thing I know of, we're both products of an all girls education. Do you think that having that background of a single sex education made you unapologetically fierce? Or do you think that's because of how wonderful and amazing your parents are? Or, or what would you attribute it to? Because you are leading a tech company in a male dominated industry, you're leading a family, a house full of boys and men, you know. <laughs> so what is it that just makes you so fierce in everything you do? Oh, well, thank you, Conchie. I don't always feel so fierce, but I appreciate that perspective. Um, I do think Castellaya had a lot to do with it. I have often said to my husband that it's a good thing we only have boys because it would be really hard for me not to give a girl the same education that I had from Castellaya. Um, I just... People, and, and you probably get this all the time as well, that, you know, when you say you went to an all-girls private school, people immediately think Catholic. Yes. They don't think what Castellea was. I always have to tell people it was not a religious school. It was a very academic, math and science forward, feminist education. And I think that is unique. I don't think a lot of girls get that. And I do think that I was there from seventh grade to 12th grade. I think that those formative years where the only competition is other girls, right? We never had to sit in that math class and worry what, you know, the cute boy that you liked was going (laughs) to think if you were smarter than him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just had to worry about sitting in the math class and getting it because I just math was the subject that I struggled with the most at school. And it was a very math and science heavy education. Really? Yes. But you took that and you went to Princeton, correct? From after you graduated? I did. Yes, I went to Princeton. um, And I do have a one of those moments. And you know, now I I remember thinking I was so old when I went to Princeton, an adult, and here I was going to, you know, this college on the East Coast. Like you, Kanji, Laura and I were on scholarship. I come from a big family. My mom is Mexican. My dad is Irish American. They are Catholic. There was five of us. I never visited Princeton campus before I stepped foot on my first day. Wow. Because there just wasn't money to go visit colleges. That just wasn't in the books. When I went, you know, feeling so like adventurous, but adult, and I started going to the classes, I remember being in one of the smaller precepts, which is, you know, the Princeton, you go to the lectures, and then you have either the professor or the graduate student who does your smaller classes. And afterwards, in a study session in the dorm, another student, a female saying, God, it's just so hard. I just... I don't feel like I can raise my hand. And I had this moment where I thought, that's weird. Why? Is her, is her arm broken? Right. Is there something wrong with her hand? Yeah. And then I got it. And then I was like, oh, because she's a, like, you know, a woman. She doesn't feel like she doesn't feel cut. Like it had never occurred to me ever in my high school academic life. Like that idea that that as a girl, you'd be afraid to raise your hand. And it was this like moment where I felt so dumb, yet at the same time, so thankful. Yeah. Yes, yes. 
completely agree with you there. Wow. And you survived and you thrived at Princeton. And you met your husband when you were in college. You married your college sweetheart, correct? I did. Yes, we were sophomores. Uh, We were 20. We weren't even of legal drinking age when we met. So yes, it has been many, many years. (laughs) (laughs) But it just seems like yesterday, doesn't it? Oh my gosh, it does. Although, and um, Tara, I don't know how old your your children are or a child, but my kids now are getting older. And so it seems like yesterday. And then my husband and I look at each other and we're like, how is it possible that we have a junior in high school who drives? Yeah, Timmy's driving now. That's weird. I, that oh has to be crazy. But you just skipped ahead about 16 years. So you <laughs> left the East Coast. <laughs> Let's go back a little bit. So you left the East Coast after graduating and And somehow, well, just so you know, Tara, so our high school was in Northern California. It was just just south of San Francisco. But you ended up in the Eugene, Oregon area. How did that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was graduating from high school, um, my parents actually decided to move to Eugene, Oregon. And it was really driven by two reasons financial. My older sister, Laura, was at University of Notre Dame. I was going to Princeton. There was three more Barry children. My brother's only two years younger. So my parents were looking at the possibility of three of us in private college all at the same time. My dad was starting a business and the Bay Area is crazy. So my parents moved to Eugene, Oregon uh, the summer I went to college, right before I went to college. My dad had done his master's in journalism at University of Oregon when he and my mom first got married. So they loved the area and they knew it was a great university town to finish raising kids. They knew it was way more affordable than the Bay Area. And so they made the leap and they moved here. I graduated from Princeton. Noah and I had decided to stay together. We actually ended up in the Bay Area. We graduated in summer of 96. We were involved in the dot-com kind of boom from 96 to 2001. Okay. Um, and at that point, we were looking to where are we going to settle down because it's not going to be the Bay Area. Things are even crazier than when you know we were there. Right. And... So Eugene was a place that we would come visit my parents. We got married here in Eugene in 1999. And after um, some world travel, and we spent a couple of years living and consulting in London after we were in the Bay Area, we decided to settle down in Eugene in 2003. Wow, you've been there a while. And we will circle back and I want to make sure that everyone in your family and your friends and the business is okay after the wildfires. But Tara shared with me that you had been to Oregon once. What was your experience when you were in Oregon, Tara? Yeah. So my family and I went two years ago, I had been wanting to do a pack, you know, kind of a Northwest vacation for a while. And we flew into Portland from Dallas and we drove down to, I'm not going to remember the name of the town, but the town right outside of Crater Lake. That's what I wanted to see. That's in pretty Southern Oregon, uh, if I remember correctly, and I told Kanji, it it was a really different experience. What was the vibe you got? It was a very um, exclusive, like, I don't, I, I feel like all the words that I want to use are negative kind of to, 
Well, it Oregon, was a- <laughs> Oregon is a uh, it is a blue state. If yeah. you stay on the I five corridor, yeah. if you venture off the I five corridor, and I don't, I mean. A small town outside of Crater Lake, yeah. maybe Klamath Falls. I mean, yes, there's not a whole lot. That's right exactly there. that was exactly exactly the town we stayed in. Klamath Falls is exactly right. I remember that, yes. and we just felt not very, very blue. No, we just felt very like, what are you doing here? You got to get out of this town. It was a very weird vibe. Crater Lake was great, and where we stayed was great. You know, there's a hospitality aspect where people are friendly, but we ventured into town for dinner, and we were like, we're going to head on back to the hotel. Yeah. <laughs> it was very strange. And maybe, Sabrina, you can tell us why. We we had a conversation a few weeks ago, and you told me something about Oregon, which we were not taught in high school growing up. So talk to us a little bit about some things that you've learned about your adopted home state. Yes, and it is not something I knew until my kids were in school, and really not even because they still in 2020 are not teaching this in Oregon, but I'm involved in different community efforts and I'm uh, on the board of an organization called Oregon Community Foundation that does a lot of great work in Oregon, um, all over Oregon. So I've learned a lot about the different parts of Oregon, not being a native Oregonian. I know a lot about Eugene and Portland and Bend, Oregon and the coast, but there's Oregon is a geographically very big state, mm. population very small. Right. And Oregon was created as a state with a mandate to not allow any black people to come to Oregon. They were not allowed to own land and they were basically the mandate was ba- started by Klansmen to have an all white state. Man. And to this day, it's not taught. But nobody is, has put that in the books. Like, this is how we started? Wow. No, and they have fourth, fourth grade in public school in Oregon, and my kids go to public school. Eugene, being a smaller town, there's not a lot of private options. And actually, the public, everybody goes to public school, which actually makes it a better program. And fourth grade is, the curriculum is, Oregon State history. The kids all do the Oregon Trail. They right. pretend they're pioneers. They go to Salem, the capital. Never are they taught the origins of Oregon as a state. So I always thought the Black people didn't live in Oregon because it was so far away, because it was <laughs> in the Northwest. It When I spoke to you a few weeks ago, Sabrina, it blew my mind yeah. to find out and to learn that it was a state that was basically... Um, formed by white supremacists to Mm -hmm. intentionally keep black Americans out of it. And I just don't know why it's not taught in the greater curriculum, not just in Oregon, but in, you know, U.S. history and American history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's almost um, recently there's been obviously a lot of discussions about, you know, how does Oregon participate in, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and what is the role of Oregon. And obviously there's been all the protests in Portland and there's a lot of very passionate people who want to really make change. And so there's been a lot of discussion of what do we do and what a lot of people are saying. And I am, you know, really advocating at a state level and Department of Education level is we got to start with the education. We got to start with acknowledging you know, where this state was formed and why. And that is, you know, if we want to really 
tackle racial inequality, we have to educate people and understand why Oregon is who we are and why we are not very diverse. Yeah. And you, without understanding and educating, I don't know that we can get to the next step. And, and thank goodness there's a lot of very passionate people. But again, I-5 corridor. I mean, your experience, Tara, in uh, Klamath Falls, it's not unique. And, you know, now with the political climate, you feel it even more depending on where you drive and where you are. Um, this summer recently, I started doing a lot of road biking and about, I don't know, two or three weeks ago before the fire started, um, I went out to do a ride uh, about 45 about 45 minutes from Eugene um, around this lake. There's this beautiful old railroad track that's been converted. So there's no cars until a certain point, but you know, a lot of road bikers, although it's Oregon, there's not a lot of people. And I was out there and I didn't realize that part, the last eight miles of this ride took me on these rural roads in the middle of these very teeny tiny towns mm -hmm. and I'm all by myself mm -hmm. and I'm a woman yeah. and there's all these Trump signs and all of a sudden I'm biking and there's no cell phone signal. Mm -hmm. And I just felt so uncomfortable. It just felt like what happens if I get a flat out here? Yeah. That's how we felt. We, you know, we started in Portland and we drove south and it's a long drive. Like, as you said, Oregon is a giant state. And so I think we drove six hours, you know, all the way down. And you go from this really insane cityscape to nothing. Like, even we were like, uh, let's make sure we have gas. Like, I don't see gas stations out here. And then even in Klamath Falls, we had there were these old rules like you couldn't pump your own gas. And and uh, there was almost no cell phone signal the entire drive like through those forests it's such a rural state once you get outside those cities it was really jarring but but tara and and sabrina uh, you both have a different experience because you know tara is white mm -hmm. and sabrina even though you are multi-ethnic and i know that your mother is mexican you appear facially white you know your dad has really strong genes the irish genes are strong <laughs> in here and i just yep. wonder what that level of fear or concern could have been like or would have been like had you um, been someone, a person of color, an indigenous person or a black woman yeah. in that area, you yeah. know? Um, and, and what I love about you and what I love about your heart, Sabrina, is that you empathize with and you put yourself in those shoes and you make sure that your sons do that as well. And that's what's so empowering about you using your voice and your platform and your position for good. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And and you're right, I do. I carry white privilege. Um, now, I have a lot of immediate family members who don't because, you know, my mom looks Mexican. She's not super dark, but she definitely looks Mexican. She has a very thick accent. People know she's not from here. Yeah. Um, my mom's sister, who has spent a lot of time with us and in Oregon, and then her two sons, who are very dark, have spent a lot of time. So I've been in situations in Oregon with immediate family members and witnessed and been very uncomfortable and, and witnessed what they have gone through. But you're right. I And so I, I think and I hope that it helps me empathize a little bit more. Um, but I do carry white privilege and I do talk about it with my boys. Um, I told Kanji a story when we talked about my son, my older son, 
he's 16 now, but last winter he's 15. Um, he's a ski racer. He was up at Mount Bachelor at the lodge um, either before or during the ski race with three or four other 15 year old boys. There weren't a whole lot of other people around. It was early season, not great snow. They were there because they were racing and there was an older woman who was very annoyed with them. And I am sure that four or five 15 year old boys were being raucous yeah. and loud <laughs> right. and potentially inappropriate because you know they're 15 year old boys right. clutch your pearls <laughs> oh my gosh yeah. well she called the mount bachelor police ranger on them oh my goodness and he came and she accused them of swearing and i don't know what else mm. and the police ranger kind of shook his finger at them and got mad at them uh, but didn't do much else. I mean, he could have pulled their season passes, which is a huge deal because those are expensive. Um, he, there's a lot of things he could have done. He didn't. He just gave them a warning. Yeah. But my son recounted this story to me and was very upset and said, we didn't do anything. She, like, she could have been on the other side of the room. We were not bothering her. She was just annoyed at us. And I did have a conversation. I said, Timmy, you are lucky that the four of you are white boys yeah. because when people have to deal with police and when you're talking to teenagers and if you were teenagers who were people of color, that could have gone very, very differently. And I'll tell you right now, don't complain and understand that you have white privilege and yeah, you're a teenage boy. So guess what? Doesn't matter if she's lying they're going to believe the 55-year-old adult Correct. white woman over the 15-year-old boys. And thank God you didn't have to deal with something that could have been horrifying because all of you are white and have white privilege. Yeah. Right. It must be terrifying for you to have a son now that is driving and what that looks like because you start to lose a little bit of control, don't you? A lot. <laughs> Don't scare a us lot. too much, okay? <laughs> so Tara and I have sons. Our, our, our sons are Sammy's age. Your, your youngest son yeah, are, yeah. is the same age as our boys. But but we, we talk a lot about the motherhood journey, yes, and what it looks like at different stages of your life. And you are now at the stage where you have older boys, 16-year-old, 14-year-old, and Sammy is nine? He's 10. He's 10 and 10. So all double digits. And so y what you're doing as a mom, it's a different, you know, they need you in a different kind of way. What has this been like this season of motherhood? Oh, it's hard. It's really hard. Don't um, say that. Yeah. Don't say that. Just Sabrina. pretend. Yes. Give me hope. Please give me hope. No, I mean, there's hope, right? Of course there is because you are watching them turn into these young men. And yeah, that is hard. It's terrifying. Um, I do, I, I keep trying to remind myself in my head of, you know, what high school is supposed to be. Mm. And, you know, middle school, you should have lots of scaffolding still, right? As parents, you're still kind of holding them up and there's lots of scaffolding. But what high school is all about from freshman to senior year is to take that scaffolding down so that they can do things on their own. And, you know, it's not terrifying to them, right? right. They want more independence. Yeah. They want to push more. But that's a good thing. That's what that's age appropriate. It's terrifying. It's really hard. And yeah, to have this kid in this 
you know, vehicle that's whatever many tons a, a car is and going <laughs> that fast. And, you know, are they safe? Are they driving too fast? Yeah. You know, are they texting? Or <laughs> oh, all of it. It's terrifying. You know, it is terrifying. But I, I do know that it is the next step. And what I have to do is find that balance to let him have his independence because he's going to go off to college in two years. Right. And I want him to be ready for it. Yeah. So, you know, as terrifying as it is, you have to be able to find that balance. And I will say, and this probably doesn't help either one of you, I do think my 16-year-old is a very motivated, very athletic kid, very focused on both athletics and academics. He's a 4.0 student. Um, he's got, you know, a recruiter recruiting him for rowing for college right now, but he also is a ski racer who's done phenomenally well. I mean, he's just a very motivated, good kid, but he also so wants his independence and yeah. that's even harder. <laughs> yeah. But that's harder, right? Yeah. He's a good kid. So it's almost like I have no reason not to give him more independence. And my husband and I talk about this all the time and just say, okay, where's that Where's that line? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if he were messing up, I think it would be easier for us to kind of keep the scaffolding up yeah, and yeah. just say no. But do you but need a reason? Do you need a reason? Can it, <laughs> when do, can't we just fall back on what our moms did? Because I, so. I said so. That's where we need. To, we need more of that in That's America. We need up. to bring back the because, because I, I said, said so. Reason. Oh, and you will use it. I mean, the things you say, and you guys, I'm sure, have said them to your own. Oh sons, my God, older, so much. The older they get, the more you find yourself saying things and you're going, I cannot believe those words came out of my mouth. <laughs> Absolutely yes. true. You talked about how you're able to balance um, what to give your sons versus allowing them to be independent. But you also have a balancing act every day of your life, balancing being a working mom and being a CEO of a tech company. Now, Justice Ginsburg was one of nine female students at Harvard Law School when she first started. Mm -hmm. And you are one of very few females that occupy and hold the space that you do in the tech world. Tell us a little bit about what that is like and how you are able to advocate for other women that are coming up behind you in this space? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think about it all the time. I think what I've learned and the position I find myself in as CEO is that I get a lot of independence and decision making and power that a lot of women don't have. And one of the things that um, I've talked about a lot. I've been involved locally on the city level and on the state level and on a national level uh, for uh, state and federal uh, family leave and paid time off and sick uh, and family leave pay. Um, because women find themselves in the situation when they become moms where they basically have to cross their fingers and hope they get the boss lottery. Right. And yes. 
you know, if you get the right boss who gets it, yeah. either they're a woman with their own kids or, you know, there are absolutely very enlightened men out there, but not all of them. And so did you get the boss lottery? Does your boss understand that you're going to work really hard and you're going to get everything done? It just might not be the exact time that somebody without kids is doing it, but you're going to get it done. Women who have the boss lottery and have bosses who get it excel mm. and are able to go on to the next level and are able to really, you know, do everything that they have power to do. Women who don't be when they become mothers, that's when they get boxed in. And that's when you start making decisions as a woman, I think, when you're saying, I can't spread my wings, I can't do all the things that I know I can do. And it's always a fight. And this job sucks. And that's yeah. when we decide to take ourselves out of the workforce. Yeah. So what do you do if you don't have the boss you know, like you or an enlightened man, what what would you suggest for a woman to do in that situation? I think that if they have the means and they can, they vote with their feet. If you're in a situation where your company or boss is not going to recognize your ability and give you the flexibility to work as hard as anybody else, I'm not advocating that working moms are working less and should be, you know, given you know, a, a free pass? No, the women I know and and me, like we work really hard. We just don't always work at the same time in the same way. Yeah. And I might be working. I mean, with all three of my kids, they came into the office with me because you can't take time off when you're a CEO. They came into the office with me, and I nursed them in the office for the first five months of their lives until they then went off with a babysitter and why I was able to do it because I was the boss, right? Because I, I could decide. So I always tell women, if you can, if you have, if you have the economic privilege to vote with your feet, just leave. Don't you're not going to change it. You're not going to change a person. You are not going to reparent someone and teach them just go somewhere else yeah. and find the company and the boss that is going to appreciate and understand the qualities you bring to the table. I think the hard part is women who don't have that economic privilege and right. they can't do that. Right. Or the fear of doing it. You know, There's a lot of fear of leaving the comfort of the known and stepping out into something else. Yeah. Well, and I think too, it can be difficult because people put on the face, right? So I know I've been in that situation where you, you're not getting the culture you want. So you go looking for a new culture and you have the interviews and you ask the questions and then you get there and they said it was one way, but people, def they're like, they spout a good game, but they're not really playing that game, right? So you end up in these situations where you're like, man, I really thought this was the move, but turns out it's not, not what I was expecting. Yeah, and that's really, really tough. Yeah. And and I think it's it's a shame. And I and I live in this entrepreneurial world because my software company develops software for entrepreneurs and small businesses. And one of the reasons I advocate for women in entrepreneurship is that the myth, the stereotype is and VCs have voted with their money to keep it this way, right? Women don't mm -hmm. get funded the same at the same rate that men get funded but what the women get told is oh no you can't do this this isn't for mothers you mm. you can't be a startup founder and be a mother and you know i think it's yet 
another place where women accept this kind of patriarchal idea of what it is to run your own business because that Mm -hmm. gives you power and you can make the decisions and you can then be in control and yet women are always being told it's not for you. When I became a Supreme Court Justice, there were six women in the Senate, now there are 20. I was the second woman on the Supreme Court and when Justice O'Connor left, I was all alone. Now I have two colleagues, Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Elena Kagan. People ask me, well, when do you think there will be enough? I say, well, when there are nine. And people are aghast. We've had nine men for most of the country's history, and no one thought there was anything wrong with that. Right. And I think when we bring this back to Justice Ginsburg, one of the reasons she is my hero is because she had the three strikes that I have. You know, she was entering a legal field, which was and still is Mm. predominantly filled with white men. But her three strikes against her were she was a woman, she was Jewish, Mm. and she was a mother. And so at every step of my career trajectory the last 10 years, I've had those challenges. And I work, and same with Tara. Tara also works in a male-dominated banking industry where I've had issues where there's been discrimination. And my husband has said to me and has asked me, do you think it's difficult because you're Black or because you're a female? And I said, I'm both, yeah. you know, and so I don't know if the issue is because people have problems working with me because I'm a woman in an area where a lot of the men have wives that do not work and never did work. And mm-hmm. so they don't understand the tension and also my love of working. Like, yeah. I just love it. I'm a Tara said this a few weeks ago. She's a nerd. I'm a huge nerd. <laughs> and I attribute that to Castellet, our high school. Like they celebrated yep. our, you know, they, <laughs> yeah. they celebrated that fact and encouraged us yeah. to accept and love learning. Yeah. But also there are people here in Texas that may not want to work with black people because they never have. Yeah. So knowing that Justice Ginsburg paved the way because she broke down those walls. She did it anyway. And she succeeded and she just shattered every myth and reason why you can't. I just can't even put into words what she has meant to me as, yeah. as a working mom and as a female attorney. I I just wish I could celebrate her every day of every year, you know? Yeah, yeah. no. And, and just the way she was also unapologetic, right? If you have seen her movie, if you've read anything about her, she also just didn't apologize yeah. for it. I mean, I just, she just owned it and just didn't give credence to anyone trying to tell her you can't do it. And that's really hard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, to, to see her do it is so great, and she's such a great role model, but it is not easy to go up there and be that, you know, pave the way and be the pathfinder that she was and be so unapologetic about it. She was just going to do it because she was going to do it and yeah. not ask for permission or apologize. And I think that's hard. And I think it's especially hard for women. Well, and I think too, Kanji and I have talked about this through the, uh, you know, one of our first discussions on the podcast was about, you know, school choice during the pandemic. And it was really difficult for me as a working mom to go to work and say, my son has to be home and I have to be home with him. And 
And I would have to fight myself being like, because, you know, my husband has to be at work and because, you know, we can't send him and, and come up with all these reasons and excuse for why I had to do it and then keep apologizing in meetings about why I wasn't there because I have to, you know, I'm so sorry. I have to do this. I have to do that. And very early on, I was like, I'm going to stop apologizing. And I'm just going to say like, hey, guys, we're all in this. And you guys know I've got a 10 year old at home and I've got to homeschool him and, and it is what it is. And and it's been a really interesting shift to have to practice it day to day, like to not apologize, to just say this is what it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and think about how many times women, not only do we apologize, right? We don't even want to tell the real reason we can't come. Right. Right? Correct. You don't say, I have to take my son to the doctor. You say, oh, I'm busy. Can we find a different time? That's right. You're right. Because we don't want to be seen as not being fully present. Right. You know, Um, I think that we have to get to a point where you've gotten to, Sabrina, where we can just be unapologetically honest and authentic about what it is that we are able to bring to the table because working mothers bring a lot to the table of any job that they have. Our ability to multitask, it just, it's mind boggling. Yeah, it blows you all away, I assure you. (laughs) Well, and Sabrina, one of the things that I loved uh, when Kanji told us we'd be interviewing, I was reading some of your information on your website and some articles you've written. I love the thought of the integration of a working mom where it doesn't have to be kind of what I spoke about earlier. It doesn't have to be compartmentalized, right? Where when I'm at work, I'm only at work and I don't have kids. And then when I'm home, I have kids and I don't work. I'm full-time mom. You know, it had to be separate. And I love that you were able to show that it can all be the same. You can you can be authentically yourself in all areas of your life without having to, you know, push one to the side. And I, and I just want to thank you because those the information that you have out there, those articles that you've written about the integration of the working mom. I, I love that. Oh, thank you. And and it is, I mean, it is definitely something that um, came with being a working mom, right? It is the only way that I could make it all happen and make it all work. And it, it just, I had to embrace it because this idea that there's balance, there's not balance. No balance, <laughs> like, never. There's, there's, <laughs> Like, it's like, and I feel like that's, again, something else pushed upon women. Find your balance. What balance? You know? And and instead to be able to say, I'm just going to integrate it all. And, you know, I have some great memories with my sons. As they got older, when I would travel for business, I would take one of them with me (laughs) so that we had one-on-one time. And so all three of them have done it with me. Um, the 10 year old can't wait for COVID to be done because I stopped traveling and he's younger and he hasn't had the experiences that my boys have had, but um, they have come and they have been at boots at software technology conferences with me. They have sat in the back of the room when I'm doing a speaking engagement. And every time that I would bring them when they were younger. I mean, now they're the teenagers. Probably I couldn't get them to come with me anymore because <laughs> mom's not cool they're anymore. Right, right. You're still cool, Brina. <laughs> but I, I definitely learned that what I needed to do when I traveled is not apologize that I was going to bring my sons. And I would tell people, and it was very, I would be very fearful at first mm. when I would tell 
a conference organizer or, you know, hey, I'm going to have my son on the trade show floor. Um, At the beginning, I was afraid of what I was going to hear. And overwhelmingly, people loved it. People Mm. would say, I "I wish I had done that. Why didn't I bring my kids? This is so great. Overwhelmingly, there was a positive response. And I never had a situation where somebody said, no, you can't bring them. Have you ever had an instance where people thought someone else was the boss? Like, <laughs> have you ever been somewhere and people are waiting for the man, the to, man show to show up? up. <laughs> yeah, thinking that you are bringing and carrying stuff in for potentially your boss. Has that happened to you? If so, share with us an experience or two. Yes, it happens all the time, particularly at trade shows and conferences. One of the things that I am very big on as a boss is that I don't ever ask anyone to do something that I wouldn't do myself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we don't, no one books my travel. I book my own travel. No one in the company, unless they want to, when they travel, has to take a red eye because I'm not taking a red eye. I'm too <laughs> old for that. I'm not going to do it. Good for you. I'm not going to make anybody do that. And if we're going to a conference and the trade show floor opens at 630 in the morning, I'm not going to make employees who are there working go do that if I won't do that too. So I work the trade show floor. And it happens all the time on the trade show floor. You always have the people and they're waiting. And they're waiting for one of my other employees who's male to Mm. finish talking because because he must be in charge. Obviously. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So yes, all the time. It happens all the time. And then people are like, Oh, wait, you're the CEO? <laughs> you need a, like a, a big button that <laughs> says CEO on it. <laughs> you are the boss. And you are also the boss at home, but you have an amazing co-boss. I think about Justice Ginsburg's love affair with Marty and how that wonderful, phenomenal relationship. She married her college sweetheart, just like you did. And you have an amazing spouse that is able to support you. And when you take one of the boys away, he's home with the other one. So talk to us a little bit about how um, Noah enables you to thrive at home and at work and, and just share with us maybe you're 21 years married now, right? Yes, 21 wow. years married and together 26 years. Man. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sounds like Hanji, you have the same thing. And Tara, I hope you do as well. But I don't know that I could do it without a partner who was completely 100% also involved in doing it. Um, In I've been the one who's who has traveled for business, my husband has not. And as our company grew and we hired more people, I actually don't travel quite as much anymore, but the boys are older. Um, there were definitely times when I would travel and a lot of times I would have one of the boys, but as they got a little bit older and more involved in stuff, my husband would have all three of them. And I'd be gone for four or five days and my husband was on with three boys and you know schedules of three boys plus work and you know feeding them breakfast feeding them lunch feeding them dinner doing laundry like all the things and he does not travel at all so it was always him at home and me traveling and me you know getting the hotel with one kid or no kids and him at home with all of them um and you know it's obviously necessary and it's great and it's not surprising right it's his 
he was happy to do it and yeah. he's the father. Yeah. Um, but it's also, I mean, he's talked about how it's great for him because he got a chance to be primary caregiver right. and be there for the boys and put them to bed and read them stories when I wasn't there. Because all of us who have boys know that our boys are mama's boys. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they are. It just is what it Own is. It. That's just yes, what they it are. is. Yes. That Noah recognizes it. He's like, these are these. It's my chance. Boys. Yes. <laughs> He's like, now that mommy's gone, yeah, I'm going to get my way for four days until she comes back. That's right. Exactly. Oh. And as the boys have gotten older, we found other ways that, you know, he can have that time with them. Um, I mentioned my oldest is a ski racer, but actually all three of them are. And the two older boys race all over the Northwest. It's a lot of driving, a lot of mountain snow driving. There's a lot of equipment and tuning and my husband and my sons all geek out on it a lot. <laughs> and so my husband does all the traveling for the ski racing with the boys. Oh, that's wonderful. He's the one who goes in the car. He drives the long hours. He's up at five o'clock in the morning, tuning their skis, getting to the ski mountain. It's all him and I have the other boys who aren't ski racing at our home mountain. So that's a whole lot easier. That's nice. Yeah, it is. But you know, it's really nice. And as your boys get older, it's great for him to have that one on one time in the car six, seven hours. Yeah. And he gets to actually talk to these teenage boys, which, yeah. you know, teenagers don't like to talk to you. And you know, that's the other positive thing about driving teenagers don't like to talk to you. And when you go on car trips, they're all on their devices until they get their permits and their licenses. And then when they drive, ah. they they can do nothing else but talk to you. Trickery. Mm -hmm. I love it. Do you regulate <laughs> your son's radio station choices in his car? Yeah. Who do you gets regulate the music who? choice? <laughs> do you know what he's listening well, to when he's driving around? So Spotify, mm -hmm. no radio station. <laughs> it's all Spotify. Um, I, we do. And we talk about it. I'm not crazy about all the music they listen to. Um, but we just talk about it. So sometimes when songs come on, and I just say, all right, it's the same five words. <laughs> like There's only five <laughs> words in, these, in this song. And you know, how I feel about them. So we got to find something else. I have um, a I solution. Only... <laughs> no, the solution is podcast. And yeah. I have a fantastic podcast for them to listen to. It is called Motherhood in Black and White. Yeah. And he will learn so many ideas about his future wife. That's and right. Your future <laughs> daughter-in-law. <laughs> nice. That's right. We do actually listen to quite a few podcasts. And surprisingly, the 16-year-old decided that he loves to listen to classic rock while he drives. So nice. that's a nice compromise. Oh, that's good. So <laughs> nice. you are raising them just right. You have been <laughs> so generous with your time and not just tonight, but in your entire career, one thing that I love about you and I value about you is just the time that you make for things that are important. And I know that raising up women, um, modeling the type of world that you want this world to be for your boys and for Tara's son and my son, it's just awesome to share space with you. And I am so proud to have seen the girl who was in seventh grade, <laughs> you know, become this fierce woman. And I am proud of you. I'm just so, so proud to know you. And I'm glad that we have reconnected. And so thank you for all that you do. You talked a little bit about the Oregon Communities Foundation. Can you share with us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Oregon Community Foundation is a community foundation here in Oregon. It covers the whole state of Oregon. 
donors create funds at the Oregon Community Foundation. There's community foundations all over the country. There's some very famous ones. Silicon Valley Foundation, for instance, is one of the more famous ones that a lot of people talk about. The Oregon Community Foundation, given that Oregon is a pretty small state population-wise, is actually the eighth largest community foundation in the whole country. Wow. Um, Yeah, they have done a phenomenal job of really advancing philanthropy in Oregon and their strategies uh, for that philanthropy are all about opportunity gap for kids around Oregon, um, really focusing in on arts and education, particularly in light of opportunity gap and really understanding and educating before you just go out and do philanthropy. And so they get donor money and they work with very wealthy donors and they create funds Mm -hmm. that do all kinds of great work in Oregon from a huge initiative for children's dental health in Oregon. Kids in poverty don't get good dental care and studies show it is, you know, there's a cascade of what that does to kids. um, And they've made a huge difference for kids in Oregon. So all the way from that to racial inequality, to, you know, entrepreneurship and innovation, to taking care of Oregon's environment and waterways. So it's a really cool project to be involved with and an organization to be involved with. And mostly because I get to meet really interesting nonprofits that are doing amazing work, which is really great because I can kind of understand and get, you know, kind of see all this, all these different things that are happening Mm -hmm. and ways that you can actually um, affect change, which is awesome. Yes. Everyone can affect change. So please, everyone get involved in your community. It doesn't have to be Oregon, wherever you live, get involved in your community. And the fact that you stay involved in your community and you have just been a beacon. You have been amazing. I have loved every minute of this. And my podcast producer said that I shouldn't say anything about wrapping it up, but I'm going to. <laughs> he doesn't ever want to be the bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> Sabrina, it was so lovely to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much, you guys. And Kanji, I'm so glad we reconnected. It was just amazing. And I've been watching what you guys have been doing with the podcast and the whole initiative. It's great to see action being taken and lives being changed so i really appreciate it no i appreciate you my friend and please give your parents and laura big hugs for me and just know that i think of you all fondly often and i i'm just grateful that this world has reconnected us so probably one of the best things about 2020 that's right (laughs) so thank you thank you thank Thank you so so much much for your time tell no i said hi thank you have a good one bye Talking to Sabrina was very inspiring for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she was lovely. I, um, you know, I still, I I, I want to be as fierce as Sabrina <laughs> when I grow up. <laughs> she made some great points. And one of the things I still struggle with, having been an attorney for, gosh, almost two decades now, uh-huh. I still struggle with having the ability to vote with my feet and walk away from situations or to stand up and advocate for myself. Yes. Um, And the fact that she is just so fierce and vocal in that space. Yeah. I think that there's so many things that she said that resonated deeply with me. Yeah. I'm going to be 
I'm going to be processing that for a while. I mean, she, I just really enjoyed that conversation so much. And, um, you know, you have those conversations sometimes that just kind of set something on fire inside of you. And mm-hmm. that's kind of, that's how I felt about that. Yeah. yeah. I'm not looking forward to having a kid that drives though. No, I am not at all. She was, she scared me a little bit. I should have asked her what her favorite classic rock song was. Oh, that would have been a good question yeah. for sure. I was laughing though, when she was talking about, editing what her kids listen to. And I was thinking about like, I'm actually the one that probably listens to more inappropriate <laughs> music. Gage is like, mommy, turn that off. He's like, what mom, words? what is it? I'm like, oh, oh, sorry. That is not the edited version. That is not the clean version. <laughs> That's right. Roman was downstairs listening to some stuff and his father was upstairs playing music loud and he was playing the explicit version of a song. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Roman and I said, Roman, I'm so sorry, daddy's not playing the clean version. And mm-hmm. without missing a beat, Roman looked at me and said, he's not playing the quiet version either, is he, mom? <laughs> That's so funny. These I know moments. Gage always says, uh, or we'll say in the car, Gage wants to listen to the same song over and over and over again. And so I end up going, can we please find something that we both like? That's like the, the code word for us. Like, I I don't say I hate this song or I don't want to listen to it again. We, can we listen to something we both like? <laughs> Just tell them you hate it. That's I could. I could do that. <laughs> we have to be very, very straightforward. That's what I learned from Sabrina is we're going to be straightforward. Unapologetic. Yes. Yes. That should be our word going forward this week. Unapologetic. Picking that up. Yeah, it's been a stressful week. It's been an emotion-filled week mm-hmm. with the passing of Justice Ginsburg. Yes, we are not experiencing the best of times, but there is reason to hope that that we will see a better day. But I feel a renewed sense of hope listening to other women share what she meant to them mm-hmm. and knowing that her legacy, it's created a generation of Sabrinas, you know, yeah. a generation of women who now can be CEOs, who can be working mothers, who can be the bosses yeah. so that they can lift up and raise up other women. It's an amazing thing to see. And that's what I'm going to choose to focus on as I go forward. Just the women that she inspired and seeing these women continue to um, carry the torch, pick it up and move forward. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. That being said, we are going to wrap up another episode. We thank you so much for sharing space and sharing time by listening to us and listening to Sabrina talk a little bit about our backgrounds, our motherhood journey. And we invite you to continue to connect with us as we move forward and get ready for another amazing week. That's right. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in, guys. We love hearing from you. If you remember, if you're listening to us on Apple, if you're listening to us on Google, you can subscribe. And if you're listening to us on Spotify, you can follow. We're very excited again that we've hit the Amazon podcast platform. It's another new one for us. Uh, Please continue to leave those reviews for us. Those five-star reviews, leave us comments. We read every single one of them and we love having you join us for this. It's been amazing. It's been wonderful. And we'll do it again next week. Same time, same place. Take good care. I certainly was given a tremendous boost into the public arena by the notorious RBG. When I was asked about it, I said, well, it's exactly right, because notorious B.I.G. and I had something in common. We were both born and bred in Brooklyn, New York.